Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Before we begin, here's a special code that gets you a 20% discount subscription to New Scientist. The code is POD20. Go to newscientist.com slash POD20 to subscribe and you get all the contents of the magazine plus audio versions of the stories to listen to on the app. That's newscientist.com slash POD20 to get you your 20% discount. Hello and welcome back to New Scientist Weekly. I'm your host, Rowan Hooper. And I'm your other host, Penny Sarche. Welcome to the show. This week, we're joined by New Scientist reporters Michael LePage, Claire Wilson and Matthew Sparks. Hello, all. Hello. Hello. Hi. How's everyone doing? Has everyone dodged Omicron so far? Just about. So far, yeah. <laughs> yeah, same here. It's really feeling like just got to dodge it a bit longer. Okay, coming up on the show this week, we've got a late contender. This is a late contender for my favourite story of the year. It's about brain cells in a dish playing video games. <laughs> uh, uh, we've also got a fascinating story about the creative benefits of this mysterious phase that's on the border of sleep and wakefulness called the hypnagogic state. As well as that, we're hearing about how to make truly intelligent machines and why zebra finches sing to their eggs. And we've also got turkeys with different personalities. <laughs> yes, uh, loads of great stuff. But look, let's start quickly with an uh, Omicron update, Michael. You've been reporting this again. Where are we at with it? So it's reached most countries in the world already and it's just spreading at an astonishing pace. So cases have been doubling every two days in, in England. So we're definitely going to see a huge global spike in cases in the coming weeks. And, and the UK yesterday reported its highest number of daily cases since the pandemic began, which is just astounding. It seems to be there's still this big question because of the time lag normally between infection and, and severe disease that we're still sort of waiting to, to know how severe it is. What, what do we know so far? Uh, we are still waiting, but we've got some initial estimates from a private health company in South Africa I should stress it's just initial. And they've, they've found that two doses of the Pfizer vaccine provide 70% protection against severe disease requiring hospitalisation, which compares with 93% against Delta. Right. So how worried should we be about that? Well, that depends on how you look at it. So on the one hand, it shows that vaccines still do provide excellent protection against severe disease, if if not as much as before, which is great. On the other hand, the risk of double-dose people becoming severely ill is four times higher than it was with Delta, which is obviously bad. Right, so that's why we really need the boosters. Exactly. And of course, the worry is that even in countries where lots of people have had boosters, case numbers could shoot up so fast that lots of people end up in hospital all at the same time. That's a big worry. So all in all, shaping up to be quite a bleak festive season. I, I've seen predictions of um, there could be as many as a million cases um, this coming Saturday. I mean, is it just inevitable that everyone, especially in London, is going to have Omicron for Christmas? Well, I, I think we've seen lots of people effectively isolating themselves already and not going out to events and lots of events being cancelled. So that hopefully will slow things down a bit. Uh, the one positive thing I can think of is that because this is happening so fast it's not going to last as long 
cases are going to go up really quickly and then back down again. But that's part of the problem is that everyone's going to get ill at the same time. Right, so if you're like me, you've been eagerly waiting for the release of the fourth instalment of the Matrix films, uh, and that's due for release on December the 22nd. Now, uh, we don't have Keanu Reeves on the show this week, but we have the next best thing, and that is Michael LePage. (laughs) (laughs) Michael, um, you've got this incredible story, which is like the Matrix, in that this group, this research group, have got brain cells in a Petri dish, wired them up into a computer world, and they they play in a version of the old computer game Pong. Yeah, this is just an extraordinary story. So lo- lots of teams around the world are already sort of growing brain-like things in dishes, but for the most part, these brain organoids, as they're called, they're yeah. not interacting with the world in any way. We're not we're not talking to them or communicating with them. So what Brett Kagan and his colleagues at Cortical Labs in Melbourne have done is to grow brain cells on microelectrode arrays so they can hook them up to a computer. <laughs> Uh, so they've gotten to play Pong. Or which, so if people don't know what that is, because it's from 1972, the original <laughs> game, <laughs> it's one of the first computer games. It's the one where you have just two paddles going up and down and they have to bat a ball over a net. Yes, and the, the extraordinary thing about this, as far as these sort of cyborg mini-brains is concerned, is that they think they're actually in this sort of uh, virtual game world. They, they think they are the paddle that they is hitting the ball. <laughs> Uh, or, or as Kagan puts it, they, they are actually living in a matrix. <laughs> I mean, it is just extraordinary. Um, and and it's kind of funny, but it gets to something we've talked about on the podcast before. It's about the idea of, of sentience in brain organelles and when they become, when they might actually think and understand things. You know, is that a concern of theirs at the moment? I mean, these... These things are, have just got sort of about a million cells each, which is about the size of a cockroach brain. So this is not much more than an insect at this point. But uh, Kagan is saying, you know, they are they are sort of talking to bioethicists and planning a, a meeting next year to, to discuss all these issues. OK. And uh, are they any good at this game? Uh, oh, oh, they they're not very good at all, to be to be honest. Um, <laughs> conventional conventional AIs can do better, but I think that the point is that just getting a bunch of cells in a dish to play a game at all is a, is a really big step forward. It's more than anyone else has achieved. Yeah. And the other point that uh, Kagan was making is that these living cells learn really fast. So he's trained AIs to play the same game and it takes them 5,000 rallies to get to the same point as the little mini brains achieve in just 15 rallies. So <laughs> way, way more efficient. And uh, is it causing excitement as much as I'm excited about this get this story? Oh, I, I've never had such striking comments as a story on this one, I don't think. Wow. Uh, so there's a, a, a really prominent brain researcher at University College London called Carl Friston, and, and he, he called it a quantum leap forward, no less. Wow. And what's their aim of this then? Well, uh, brace yourselves, the ultimate aim of the company is actually to increase, create intelligent cyborg brains. So they, they, <laughs> well, that's, that's their stated aim. Uh, they're, well, they're quite open about that. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yes, uh, right. I think so. That's okay. uh, what Kagan was saying. Uh, and so th- their argument is that such brains could actually outperform conventional silicon-based machine learning. This is just, I, 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 I'm so excited by it, but also terrified by the idea of intelligent cyborg brains, you know, artificial organic brains 
running around the place. I think a lot of people will have problems too that, you know, these are human brain cells. I think that's going to be very uncomfortable for a lot of people. Yes. And I think that's because we all assume that sort of human brain cells are going to be more likely to have feelings than silicon ones. But what I was wondering is, is that actually true? I mean, if we have computers doing the same sort of things, are they any less likely to be sentient and have feelings and emotions? I, I don't know. Anyway, that that stuff's sort of quite a long way off to, to get to actually anything like a human brain. But the, the more immediate application is that because these things are very good at learning fast is that they could help us make silicon-based AIs learn faster and be more efficient. And so training AIs actually uses a huge amount of energy and that obviously emits lots of carbon. So that's actually really important as AIs become more and more widely used. And we'll have a bit more about AI and, and learning from Matt in a bit. Now let's move on to the first of two bird stories this week. Hey, just for you, Penny. This bird week. First, uh, it's zebra finches. Uh, Now these are very common in Australia, but also they're often kept as pets. And in science, you know, there's lots of work done on these things. Yeah, a huge amount. They've taught us a lot. So um, I remember learning a lot about uh, how looking at how they learn their songs has taught us all sorts about how the brain works and sleep and learning and memory. And they were also the first passerine, which is a perching bird, to get its genome sequence, weren't they? Yes, that's right. Um, And now it turns out they do something quite amazing, which is they sing songs to their eggs, which lots of birds do. But these songs that the zebra finches sing program the offspring's mitochondria to be better able to harness energy from food. Yeah, this is a mind-blowing story. It's almost (laughs) in the realm of superpowers. So what exactly is going on? What's happening? I don't know if I can tell you exactly what's going on, but you know, right. So they live in in the deserts in Australia. um, And we already knew that they they do these songs called heat calls uh, to their offspring, and it warns the eggs about hot weather. So we already knew they can use these songs like a sort of prenatal weather forecast. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, And it's been shown that exposure to these heat calls prenatally somehow makes the body sizes of the hatched offspring smaller uh, and a smaller body size increases your surface area to volume ratio. So you're able to lose more heat. Which is amazing in itself. But what's the new finding now? So they've looked at what the songs do to the offspring cells and in particular into into the mitochondria as we've reached only a couple of weeks ago, we spoke about it on the podcast as one of our favourite organelles, although Claire did take me to task for that. So the researchers played recordings of heat calls to eggs while they developed and 13 days after the eggs hatched as well, took blood samples from the baby birds and looked at the mitochondria. So this is a special thing for, for birds, right? Because human red blood cells don't have mitochondria? That's right. Humans don't, but birds do. And they found that these heat calls programmed the mitochondria to more efficiently make ATP. And that's the molecule which is the energy, uh, which gives the energy currency to a cell. And so what has that got to do with heat regulation then? (laughs) Right. So then because the mitochondria were using more of the energy from food to make ATP, the mitochondria were using less food to generate heat uh, which is another thing they do, and that's useful if it's a hot net. If you're in a hot environment or a hot nest, and you need to stay cool. And the experiment found that this only happened when the eggs uh, were exposed to these heat calls. Yeah, from when they w- were sung to by their parents. So when they were exposed, when they exposed eggs to zebra finch calls that aren't sung specifically in that in that hot call, uh, the mitochondria then were less efficient at generating the energy and producing, and they produced more heat compared to the heat called ones. 
Time out, we have a notice about our big live event next year. We're rescheduling New Scientist Live Manchester to the 12th to the 14th of March 2022. We think this is going to be a better time to welcome you in person. But one thing that doesn't change with the new dates is that if you'd rather enjoy the event from the comfort of your home, all the weekend stage talks will be streamed live online. Uh, so we hope this new date and hybrid format will give you the chance to enjoy the world-class talks and engaging activities that New Scientist Live is famous for in a safe and welcoming environment. Uh, for the latest and how to book your tickets for this, go to newscientist.com live. And we also have a notice from New Scientist Jobs in association with SRG. They're conducting an annual global science employment survey to provide you with the latest insights into the STEM industry. We will benchmark salary data as well as topical issues such as employee satisfaction, your employer's response to COVID-19 and discrimination in the workplace. So if you work in the STEM industry, we would love your thoughts and feedback on these topics and how they've affected you to help us create the 2022 Global Science Employment Report. The questionnaire takes less than 10 minutes to complete and, as a thank you, all respondents who complete it will have the option to be entered into a prize draw to win one of five £100 Amazon e-gift cards. And also, everyone who takes part in the survey will receive a copy of the 2022 Global Science Employment Report when it's published. To find out more and complete the survey, please visit newscientist.com slash global employment survey. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Now, we've talked on the podcast before about artificial intelligence learning language and how the dominant approach for researchers in recent years has just been to throw more and more computing power at the problem. But DeepMind, that's the AI company owned by Alphabet, is now taking a different approach. Matt, tell us about it. Yeah, so the the trend uh, in recent years has just been to make AI models larger and larger. And uh, to be fair to them, it's it's worked quite well. But the models have become quite expensive and unwieldy, and they're, they're quite hungry for resources, like Michael talked about earlier on. We recently talked about a new model that was created by Microsoft and NVIDIA. That pushed the boundaries of what could be done uh, a little bit, not by much, and it certainly wasn't cheap. So that one required more than a month of supercomputer access and almost 4,500 high-power graphics cards to train, which NVIDIA said cost millions of dollars at least. Now, DeepMind's been doing some research about whether scale's the only way to go forward. Uh, on the one hand, they found that scale it does boost performance, but they also worked on a new strategy that used a much, much smaller AI, uh, but one which had the ability to look things up like we would with a search engine. So how much smaller then is DeepMind's new model? Uh, We've talked before about an AI called GPT-3 from OpenAI. That became a bit of a benchmark last year because its abilities were so much better than anything we'd seen before it. That model had 175 billion parameters. Wow. And the, uh, the Microsoft and NVIDIA one we just mentioned, that had 530 billion parameters. 
But DeepMind's created one called Retro. Uh, that's just got 7 billion. So that's 25 times fewer than GPT-3. The trick is that it also had access to this big database of information about language, two trillion pieces of data, which it could sort of quickly refer to when it was trying to put together a sentence or a paragraph. Uh, and DeepMind say that those results on some benchmarks are comparable to GPT-3. Does that mean it can write like GPT-3? And what, so what are these benchmarks? So benchmarks for, for language AI, they're, they're sort of still being developed and, and changed. They're, they're lagging behind the technology in a way. Uh, and you, you tend to just end up with an abstract number. So rather than getting them all to write a story and somehow sort of comparing them with each other, they tend to sort of statistically analyze the output. Uh, long story short is that DeepMind's model can do as well as GPT-3 on, on some of those measures. Okay, so uh, does that mean we're, everyone's going to start switching to smaller models now? Probably not. I suppose the, the likely outcome is that researchers will, will keep investigating this lookup idea, this search engine idea, but they'll also continue throwing vast amounts of money and computers at the problem as well. Yeah. But there are other benefits to the lookup approach. Um, usually AI models, they're, they're black boxes and, and the inner workings, they're a bit of a mystery. With Retro, it's possible to see which bits of external data it's referred to when building a sentence. So you can sort of uh, build some basic explanation as to how it arrived at a particular phrase. Wow. So that means you're actually starting to get a mechanism for machine intelligence to understand what they're doing. It certainly gives us clues about what they're doing. You still can't really see inside, but you right. can see what they look up. Yeah. But it also allows the model to be updated a lot more easily. If you take a traditional model that was trained in 2020, and then you say, who won Wimbledon? It will tell you Simona Hallett. But if Retro gets given access to fresh data, maybe even what's published on the internet, it might know that Ashley Barty was a sort of more contemporaneous answer without having to be retrained. Okay, so it's it's more up to date, basically, because it, it would get the, the latest version, the latest answer. Exactly. Um, and so is DeepMind making this all available? Like, you know, because OpenAI, in their very name, that's what they're all about. It's their pledge is to do it all openly. Or a DeepMind, is this all proprietorial? And, you know, what you're reporting now is, is basically like the crap version of a really good one that they've got hidden away. No, they're, they're releasing it all, all openly. Um, okay. So all the code is out there and all, all of the training data as well. Whether or not you could actually get this up and running on your own, that's uh, that's another story. Yeah. Now I have a question. What connects the artist Salvador Dali, the inventor Thomas Edison, and the writer Mary Shelley? Who I know. So do I. Yeah, I, I hope you do for the next segment, but I was wondering whether the listeners do. So reportedly, all three of these people gained creative insights from a phenomenon called hypnagogia. Now, Rowan, I know you've been on a sleep study to investigate this, mm. uh, but Claire, you've written about it recently. Um, can you tell me what it is? Okay, well, hypnagogia is a state that all of us probably experience every single night. It sometimes happens as we are drifting off to sleep, and it's usually associated with quite uh, intense dreams. But by the time we wake up in the morning, we will have forgotten them all. So the reason we even know about these dreams is because if you can wake someone up while they are in this state, they will report all sorts of interesting dreams. And sleep researchers can do that just by placing some simple electrodes on the scalp as people go off to sleep. 
Um, in fact, some people who believe that they never dream can be very surprised if they go through this process and sleep researchers wake them up at just the right time and they're allowed to discover what happens during hypnagogia. So is this the same as just when you dream at any point in the night or is it a particular phase of, of really weird dreams? The latter. But it's also true that some people believe they never dream and it's because they just haven't been woken up during those dreams. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, so I've, I've, yeah, as Penny said, I've slept in a few um, experiments where they've wired up my brain with those electrodes, like you said, Claire. Um, and it's amazing. They give you a printout in the morning of your brainwaves throughout the night and you can point to the different phases of sleep, the hypnagogic state mm. and, and REM sleep. But tell us about this, the connection with creativity. Well, some people believe that these very vivid dreams allow their brains to be more creative than when they're in their, their normal waking state. One sleep researcher believes it's because it's halfway stage between being awake and unconscious. They said, well, you can go exploring, but at the same time, you can potentially identify patterns that could be useful. Yeah, it's this. It's a really extraordinary stage of this border state. And I seem to notice it a lot now because normally you go straight through it into stage one, two, three and, you know, into deeper sleep. So you forget about it. But I find myself now coming, you know, rising back out of this hypnagogic state. And the way I often experience it is as if there's a rush of images and thoughts. It's it's almost as if you're, you know, standing on a riverbank. And uh, they're just streaming past you. You're watching all these things go past you, which is just it's such, such a weird thing. But what's the new thing about it this week, Claire? OK, well, a study has recently come out where scientists tried to measure if it truly does lead to creativity. So obviously, that's quite a hard thing to measure. You, you know, it's hard to objectively say if somebody is being a more creative painter or writer. So instead of that, they created a special maths problem um, people had to solve it by ploughing through a series of orderly rules. But what the people didn't know was that there was a simple shortcut to the right answer. And so the team got about 100 people to try doing this maths problem. And then they let them have a rest in a nice dark and quiet room with the electrodes on their head. And some of them did get to experience hypnagogia. Um, and the ones who did were much more likely to find the shortcut to the maths problem. I really like the use of maths here, because often people <laughs> think of creativity as just being about words and, and art. But, you know, mathematicians say that really their discipline is hugely creative, don't they? So how much more likely were people to find this shortcut uh, from that state? Oh, quite a lot. So something like 80% if they did experience hypnagogia during the rest and 30% if they didn't. So um, that sounds like uh, something I'd really like to tap into, but um, I've never quite managed it. Yeah. How. Well, so people are developing ways to do it. Um, so you mentioned Edison at the beginning and what he used to do is, is uh, sleep or go to sleep holding metal balls in his hand. And as he dropped off and as he entered the hypnagogic state, his hand would relax and the balls would then fall on the floor and wake him up. And then he'd remember whatever all these creative things that were buzzing around in his head at that point. Um, and that's the sort of thing that people are trying to imitate with sort of sleep training devices. Right, we promised two bird stories and here's the second one and it's a turkey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it is literally about turkeys and in particular how the feather colours of certain kinds of turkeys can predict how well they cope with life on the farm. Yeah, I just can't imagine how this story works go on 
Yes, so domesticated Nigerian indigenous turkeys, they're born um, in a variety of colours, so uh, either black, white or lavender plumes, which sounds lovely. Despite descending from the same genetic line, um, they actually have quite different behaviour. So black turkeys display uh, the boldest and most adventurous behaviour. Lavender ones are much more fearful. And then the birds with the white plumage appear to be somewhere in between the two. Wow. Uh, that's amazing. Wait, so they're not clones because they're, so there are genetic differences in colour and that's linked somehow to person- these differences in personality, right? Because that's what this is, isn't it? It's an animal personality story. Yes, exactly. I'm precisely the sort of person to share a story about turkey personality a week before Christmas. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, these three personality differences um, may be related to the accidental side effects of domestication combined with genetics. So colour genes seem to be linked to certain behaviours. My, my guess would be that the, the genes for some of these personality traits are actually very close to some of the genes for colour pigments on, on a chromosome, perhaps. And, and so when humans uh, began uh, uh, breeding these turkeys for, for different personality traits they probably also indirectly selected for different colors um so you know you if you're farming turkeys you, you'd probably prefer an animal that was tamer and, and more productive and, and not too afraid so the problem with fearful turkeys um which tend to be these lavender ones is they're not only they're, they're harder to approach but they also gain weight at a slower rate and they produce fewer eggs so that they're not an ideal bird for farming yeah, so but selection hasn't got rid of these fearful ones. No, exactly. It, ha- it hasn't been as simple as that. And and this new study doesn't suggest that that's what people should be aiming for either. Um, one of the researchers involved said you, you, sh- you don't throw them away. So instead, the suggestion here is that farmers can actually help the lavender turkeys cope better with, with the stress of, of being on a farm through things like nutritional and environmental enrichment to sort of mm. reassure them. Yeah, make their short lives better before we eat them. Uh, but, you know, I guess while we do have all these animal products, um, we obviously we have to improve their welfare. Mm, yeah, and, and there's a few things um, that, that might work. Uh, the research says farmers could maybe try broadcasting classical music into the farmyard, which apparently helps the lavender birds. Uh, things like rubber balls, ropes and swings could provide uh, distraction. <laughs> Um, well, you just mentioned Christmas. This is sounding like getting tur- turkeys to vote for Christmas um, by, you know, like just give them some toys first and win them over. Yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit uncomfortable, isn't it? Mm. But but we do farm turkeys. So while we're doing that, understanding their welfare and, and making them feel comfortable is, is obviously very important. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoy our show, please tell all your friends about it and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our guests this week, Michael LePage, Claire Wilson and Matt Sparks. Next week, don't miss it. We've got the legendary new scientist end of year party and quiz. Goodbye for now. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.